Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This 500th episode of Wine for Normal People is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Buy the wine lover in your life a Wine Access gift card for the holidays. And please support them. They have been awesome to us over the years. They've made it possible for us to get to 500 episodes. Get on it today. Wineaccess.com slash WFMP. All right, MCI's episode 500. Dun, dun, dun. I feel like you did that for episode 300, episode 200, episode 400. So then we should continue the pattern. That sounds fantastic. This one is really special, both because it's episode 500 and, I mean, we're going into our 14th year of the show. That's crazy. You don't look old enough to have a podcast that old. Do you remember all those years my dad going, what are you going to do? How are you ever going to make money off of this? You should just quit. What are you going to do? Go get a marketing job. And I did do various marketing jobs along the way. Let's face it. I had to do some part-time work to yes, keep this all, going. All, the, all those years I was like, uh, let's split the podcast into two episodes per, and then it'll drag out longer because you're going to run out of topics eventually. He always said that. You're going to run out of topics. You're going to run out of things to say. Then, it, you know, you stop doing that after a while. Yeah, I gave up. <laughs> Just like everything else. You, I wore you, you, you down. Wore, you wore me down. That's great. Well, if I don't do it, the girls will do it. And if they don't do it, the dog will dog, do it. Dog will so you got it all yes. together. All right. So this one's super special because this time it is questions from the listeners, specifically the patrons, which we will give our shout out to and plug once again. If you're not a patron, you're missing out on this amazing opportunity to be part of a fabulous community, but also this opportunity to do things like this. Not everybody gets an opportunity to come to Hangouts. Not everybody gets an opportunity to do this. So this show is driven by patron questions about the show. But of course, the podcast, which has always been about the listeners, should be driven by the listeners. It's a great idea. So we have some really special guests. I am happy to say that Douglas, Douglas, you were on episode what? 200. 200. And now you're on 500. Here we go. It only took us 300 episodes to get back to you. I mean, that's not bad. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to share with other folks today. Well, we are excited to hear from you. Do you want to do your question first, Douglas, as listener number one and also blog reader number one besides my mom? This is Douglas T. from Chicago. Been here and a longtime fan of Wine for Normal People from day one. This kind of goes back to when you started the show. If you had any broadcasting experience before you picked up your first mic, and if there were any journalists or broadcasters you kind of looked to as as a North Star for what you wanted to do with the show. Such a great question, Douglas. And the answer is, if you listen to the first episodes, then you know I had absolutely zero experience doing this at all. and that. But a lot of experience talking in general. <laughs> I can't catch a break. I actually had a lot of theatrical experience. So my entire childhood was spent performing. I was first in ballet, have always been a performer. Did ballet from the time I was three years old. Then I moved into theater. I did community theater. I sang. I sang solos. Then my voice changed. I don't sing that well anymore. And then I became the lead in all my school plays. And then I got out of that and then just became a school nerd. But I have always been, in fact, it was really interesting. One time at college, this guy who I really didn't know that well said, you know what? I wrote a mini play. And I don't know whether you do theater, but I want you to be in it. Really? I think I you, yeah, that. he stopped me and he said, he said, you know, I don't know you that well, but you seem, you have theater experience, don't you? Did you, you? ask what the subject was? No, it was about some like horrible fight that it people, wasn't, it was like yeah, a divorce You want to make sure thing. it wasn't like some witch or something that he was. I would have been fine with that. Okay. Yeah, I right. was just like into theater, you know? I so said, I said witch. I think that <laughs> when I'm old, I'll do like community theater again. I loved it. I really, really loved it. But this has been a great outlet for me because I've always been a performer. But Douglas, you will appreciate this. In more recent years, I have gotten a lot of inspiration. And I know somebody actually one time dropped off Patreon because they said they hated Michael Smirkanish. But Michael Smirkanish, whose show I've been on, on Sirius XM, I have respected him because he's pretty balanced and fair. Mm-hmm. He's very well researched. 
that's been really, really good. I don't think that TV journalists are anybody that I could ever look up to because they have to go really shallow. And I think the podcast goes a little bit deeper than that. But some people in radio have been helpful. But that's a great question, Douglas. And the answer is really, no, I have no broadcast experience. And, and the other, I'm sorry, I'll add, I'll, add, right, I'll add one more thing to that, which is among the many horrible things that people said about me, especially at the beginning, one of them I was... I said I was sorry. One of them was, you are the worst interviewer ever. Now, I won't go back and listen to old podcasts. I'm one of those people, like people that don't watch their own movies and stuff like that. But I do know that I was so worried about not being perceived as being knowledgeable that I did often. You prepare so well for interviews. Well, now I just let people talk. It's a lot easier. No, frankly, it was too much work. Ahead of time. <laughs> I mean, you really put the work in ahead of time. I commend you for that. Well, thank you. I don't want to go ever be unprepared. I need to know as much as they know about themselves. All right, Louisa, Louisa, tell us where you're from and tell us your question, because I think it is kind of related to Douglas's question or what we were just saying. Well, I'm joining you today from Monmouth, which is in Wales, although I'm from London originally. Oh, nice. And I'm a teacher here in Monmouth, and I fell in love with wine, well, quite a long time ago, but specifically during lockdown and listening to your podcast, I think it was one campagna that really switch me on to the podcast and uh because of you now I know the difference between my Fiano and my Falangina which Yay. I did so yeah I've loved it my question was if you were going to come to Europe you come a lot which region have you not been to yet that you would be keen to explore in person and find out a bit more about that's a yeah. hard question but I have to tell you I've never been to Alsace so oh, I have, wow. yes. So I have done one of your favorites. The problem with Alsace is that it's not very centrally located. You have to make a trip. If you're going to go to Alsace, you have to go there. And a lot of my trips are based off of, I mean, just think about where Burgundy is and where Bordeaux is. They're all kind of near stuff. And then Alsace is in, up in that corner. So I just have not made it there. I think one of the funnier things that I will tell you is that in the wine world, I think that people who are in media, people think we've been to every place and every region. And they also think that we've heard of every single producer. And it can be really, really challenging when you're talking to somebody to explain to them that if you think about your own life, I mean, even though it's our job. It's like you're from New York and some people say, oh, you're from New York? Uh, do you know Joey? Like. When I went to college, people did ask I me know. if I knew Amy I Fisher. Know. Anyway, that's only if you're <laughs> old enough to know who that is, would that make a difference? But um, yeah, so we can't get everywhere. There are regions that we hit multiple times, and then there are regions that we don't get to hit because you've got to make a special trip for that. So Alsace would be my place because I love Alsace. It was the wine that got me into wine. Besides Dolcetto on the red side, which I've already certainly covered Piedmont plenty. After doing that project with the wines of Alsace, I really fell in love with those producers. They were so great, really interesting people. So I'm excited to get there someday. That would be the one that comes to mind immediately. As a beta, though, I'd love to go back to Greece. Greece, because I have been to Greece, but not for wine. And I'd love to go to Greece because I'd like to go to mainland Greece, where all of the really like Nemea and Nasa and all of those really interesting places. That would be really interesting, I think, because those producers in the last like five years have come so far. We're about to do a Greek wine podcast. Hmm. Hold your horses on that one. And I had one, one more question. Yes. Make this one more brief. I think this is what you were referring to when you were talking about a, a question similar to Douglas's. When you're making the podcast, are you focusing just like two or three weeks in advance? Is it a year in advance? You obviously have to pencil in perhaps some people that can't make it for three months. So do you have a, a calendar on the on the wall? It is much less organized than that. I wish it were more organized, but this is part of the thing about being a one person operation with a sidekick over here who's got a full-time job. A couple things. Usually what I'll do is I'll make a list at the beginning of the year of topics that we haven't covered. And you may see on Patreon that that's around the time that I start asking you all what you would like me to cover. I'll look at things because again, we've been around so long. We have to cover things again. We have to think about what might have changed, what's interesting to people, all of that. That will be the list of the main topics. But then 
There will be trips that I'll take and I'll find people interesting. There will be people that I've met in the past that I've always meant to have on the show that I just haven't had a chance to reach out to that I reach back out to. And I say, do you remember me? And they say yes. And then we do the podcast. Occasionally I'll get PR pitches. Most of the time I do not accept PR pitches, though. It has to be something really the only public relations pitches that I will take are from universities or sometimes people in Europe. I will take those and. They may or be like on a the wine list. consortium, right? I mean, oh yeah. Anyone that's promoting wine education, you will not promote individual wineries. There are times though when we're like, oh no, that guest canceled. Mm-hmm. I was planning on having that this week. We've got to do a podcast. So yeah, there's been times we've had to throw things together because we don't work far enough in advance. We should, but the topics are all there. It's more a question of the production, which is like I said, I'd love to get ahead, but one person should. But you put in so much research for every single episode. It's true. That it's impossible. It's hard to get ahead. It really is. It is really hard to get ahead. It's all just in time. I wish it were more organized, but I guess maybe that's part of the appeal is that it's always super current. That's what I can tell it's, you. It's like it's, it's produced like South Park. Well, you know, we're, we're like the uh, Zara of podcasts. You know, whatever's on trend right now, we're going to hit that right now. We'll be producing it tomorrow. So. It always feels very current and relevant. And so, yeah, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Well, that's, that's good. good. I'm glad you. that works. You know, it's it's not always the easiest for us, but thank you, Luisa. All right, Michael, go for it. I'm Michael Famiglietti from California. And the question is, what resources do you use to prepare the pot? It's a great question. The resources I use to prepare, there's going to be a patron Q&A about this coming up, but the most important thing is to go right to the source. So what I used to do, and this is, this is a big thing that's changed for me, and it's actually changed in the industry in general. It used to be pretty difficult to get accurate information on the web about individual regions. And now everybody has stepped up. And it's great because no longer do I need to use And it's not to say they aren't great resources, but I don't have to use Hugh Johnson and Oz Clark and Jancis Robinson. I don't need to use their filtered material. I can go right to the website of Chianti Classico. I can find out all of the most current stipulations and regulations. I can find out what the actual numbers and statistics are. I can find out facts that are often misquoted in books because books are only published every so often, even my own book. Because you, Wait, you, you have can't... a book? <laughs> yeah, I happen to have a book. Isn't that strange? Huh. That is a huge development for me. I don't need maps from third parties anymore. I can get them straight off the website. Those are essential. So the fact that these resources are available and I don't need a middleman anymore has been a game changer because when people question and say, I think you're wrong about this, but someone recently I was going to say, it's, it's said, not as infrequent as you may think. <laughs> and the way it's presented is often quite interesting, let's just say, and sometimes rather... Direct and confident. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one way to put it. So, yeah, when somebody says, you said this wrong on the podcast... I can go to the DO, the DOC, take a screenshot and send it back to them and say, well, that may very well be true, but you can ask the DO about that. I don't have to say, well, I got it from Chances Robinson and I got it from this. And I got so that has been an enormously important thing. So the Plus, opening up of primary sources? Invaluable. And then the secondary sources are great. I don't use them for facts, but I will use them occasionally for historical interpretation and subjective things that have happened that the regions would never admit to. So those are also really important because the region isn't going to be like, yeah, we we really sucked until 2005 and then we got our act together. That's when I use the secondary sources where it's like, oh, right. And some of these things, these are things that I don't need to look up because I was there for them and I know what's happened and I remember them because they are benchmarks. There are things that they might be rattling around in the back of my head and I'll say, God, didn't blah, blah, blah. And that that's the real advantage of being somebody who's been doing this. You have a lot of institutional knowledge so that if someone asks me a question, I already have some idea of where that is, what happened, and whether or not it's true because I've been asked that question or studied it before or read an article on it. So yeah, 
it has been a huge game changer to have especially European regions step up and put great information on the web. So very, very important, really. That's a great question, Michael. Thank you for asking that. Luis, our German Portuguese. Hello. Um, Hello. First of all, thank you for having us. Yeah, so I am a listener from the pandemic class too, like uh, Luisa. <laughs> um, and although I am Portuguese from a proud wine heritage place, which would be Porto in the north of Portugal, I only really fell in love with wine shortly before lockdown. And that was quite timely because then I had quite <laughs> a lot of time uh, to, to get stuck into it. I lived in, in England for 10 years in Manchester. I've also been in Germany for three years now. And I live in Franconia, which is a wine-growing region. So I definitely feel I have come full circle back to a wine-producing and tradition area, although very different from uh, Portugal. So the podcast has been a main window to new places on this wine journey over the last three, four years now. And it's always an interesting listen. So please carry on the good work is the first thing I would say. Uh, The second one, which is then the question, what makes a good interviewee in terms of the podcast preparation, production, editing. Here's the situation with the interviewees. I rarely have people on that I have not met before. And fortunately, I travel enough and get around enough so that that's not usually a problem. I also will sometimes meet people and think that they're great in person, but they would not be good podcast guests. Mm -hmm. Because for the same reason that Douglas said, did you have any broadcasting experience? I didn't, but I do know when a good conversation is happening, and I definitely know when I'm going to click well, your with somebody. Background, I think, plays into that. Well, Being I'll able say- to differentiate what makes for a good interpersonal conversation versus who's going to be a good performer or going to present themselves well. Let's be clear: there's a lot of people who have a lot of expertise in wine, but not all of them should be on a podcast. Maybe some of them should write articles. Maybe some of them should talk at academic things, but not all of them should be on this podcast. Maybe some of them could be on other podcasts, but not all of them should be on this podcast. So I have a couple of criteria. First of all, is you cannot be a jerk. So I absolutely have to talk to you before and determine whether or not you're a jerk. I think I've only had three jerks on One I took out of the catalog, so by episode 185. Yeah, the other two were only mildly jerky, and it was fine. And I know I'm not telling you who they are. Everybody else I've ever had on are people who I think are wonderful people, and I have met in one capacity or another. And if I haven't met them, I have been introduced to them by someone I trust. So that's number one. Number two is they gotta be entertaining, and they gotta play ball with me. They've got to be able to laugh. They've got to be able to go with the flow. They've got to be able to answer the questions, but at the same time, not be so buttoned up that they're not going to become part of our family. Because the bottom line for me is once you get on the show, you're part of our family. And if somebody comes to your winery Mm -hmm. or comes and sees you and you don't treat them like that, I don't want to hear about that. I do not want to hear about that. So I make sure that every single person that comes on this show is somebody who, if any one of you listening to this came to their door, they would be overjoyed to see you. And any time that I go see them, they embrace me with open arms and we're best friends, even if we've never met in person. This goes for anybody. This goes from the fanciest chateau in Bordeaux to the smallest producer in Paso. So that is really key, Luis. And, and and you're not setting up an ad for these people either. That's one thing that you made clear up front. It's not an ad for them. And I do expect them when they come on to educate all of us about the region. Now I do something very different from what most podcasters do. I always write and provide every question I'm going to ask ahead of time. I do it for English-speaking producers, but I especially do it for guests when English is not the first language. Because being somebody who is trying to study a second language myself, it's not easy always to understand what the hell someone's saying and then think through it. But if I give you the questions ahead of time, you've already had a chance to think about it and you're prepared and then it makes for a better interview for us. The goal is not to have some sort of gotcha, oh, wow, I got scoop out of that person, whatever. It's to have them tell you what is going on in Montalcino 
And what is really happening there, what's really happening with the wine scene in Portugal or in any other region, tell us the truth, you know, tell us the truth. And so I'm going to give you questions and I'm going to give you the hard questions. I'm not going to surprise you with them. And sometimes I send them questions and I say, is that, did I get that right? Well, I just had a producer say, oh my gosh, that's such marketing spin. Let me tell you the real truth. Actually, we'll just save it for the show. That's my favorite moment. Any other questions? Not just a follow-up, I suppose. I can't remember in which episode it was, sorry. But uh, at, at some point in the past, you've mentioned that some people, some of your guests, you've had to sort of coax a bit more... Um, uh, interaction or you probably know what I'm referring to. But it's, yes, uh, I have to guesses. answer the questions for yeah. them sometimes because they don't answer the questions. Right. That is true. But that's part of interviewing. And so although I got criticized for that a lot at the beginning, most of the people that I have on are also people that aren't interviewed very often. So think about yourself. If you were somebody, I don't know if you are interviewed a lot, but if you're not, sometimes you go off and you don't exactly answer the question that has been asked of you. But for our purposes, we are trying to get this person to educate us. So sometimes I'll go back and answer the question. And then if you listen, what happens is then the person says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go back and answer it. They've forgotten what I asked them. But this is especially with really small producers who make like 2,000 cases of wine a year. They don't wind up on podcasts and they get nervous. Lead the witness a little bit sometimes. You have to. Right. Yeah, you have to sometimes lead people because, again, the goal of this show is at the end to make sure that you get something out of the show on the other end of it. We're going to ask the question. We need to know what the answer is. So sometimes I'll answer the question that I've asked and then they'll build on it. And that makes for an, a more interesting conversation at the end of the day. Uh, I've had some experience in the past with doing interviews to, with people, completely different context to wine. But the case remains that leading the witness, <laughs> as, as was put, helps. It helps them sort of go, oh, okay, this, this is the rail we're going in. Okay, yeah. So I can, go and, uh, I can go and join back in now. Just to let them know that it's okay to go down that route. If you've never been in a situation where perhaps your English is not perfect or your Spanish is not perfect or your Italian is not perfect and someone is helping you along the way, you are enormously grateful to that person for helping you and making you sound better. But the problem is that on the other side of things, I guess that it can be misperceived. So there you go. Tina. I'm Tina Kay from the Boston area. Started listening in March of 2020, an inauspicious date, as I needed a distraction from the unfolding horrid events that we all experienced. There are 500 episodes. How do you approach that as a new listener? I binge listened because I have a long commute, but not everybody can do that. It's, it's a little bit overwhelming with so many episodes. How do you suggest that a new listener approaches the podcast and starts their learning journey. Why are you pronouncing your R's if you're from Boston? Yeah, Tina. I wasn't born here. Okay, (laughs) there you go. All right. Okay. I'm a Midwest girl. Okay. But your husband was, and he says his R's pretty well. Well, he's New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and they don't really have a weird accent. No, they don't. No, but they like weird pizza, so I don't really know what to say. (laughs) Exactly. Pepe. Well, Tina... This is a great question. And being self-critical, I would say I don't would never listen to the early episodes, but I'm sure there's some value well, to be had there. Yeah, I mean, you talk about wanting to go back and re-record and revisit, not necessarily yeah. the episodes, but the topics, because the industry has changed, your perspective has changed, your knowledge base has changed. There's a lot that has evolved since those early episodes. So, yeah, I mean, that's probably reasonable. Would you say go back a couple of years and start moving forward? Or would you suggest starting now and working your way backwards? I would not suggest starting now and working your way backwards. Actually, it depends on the kind of person you are. So Tina, you could never not help yourself accept listen from episode one because of who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. So some people are just going to do that. I think if you were going to listen, one way you could do it is you could group together episodes, do a quick search on wineforNormalPeople.libsyn.com. The search engine works pretty well. Or look at the tags 
and see, okay, well, maybe I'll listen to a bunch of episodes on France. Maybe I'll listen to a bunch of episodes on Italy. Maybe I'll listen to things on Germany. Maybe I'll listen to things about the wine industry. There are groupings of podcasts that you can definitely listen to. In fact, on the website, there's a place on the website that says new to wine start here. And I have grouped together some podcasts for people who want to listen in certain groupings. Doing that, or you know, maybe you're interested in food and wine pairing, maybe you're interested in science, maybe there's so many doors that will get you to wine. And we have tried very hard to cover many of those things, whether it be sciencey things, whether it's been the history of the wine bottle, which is there. There are a lot of different avenues to get in. I would say start by interest. Also just be aware of when the podcasts were recorded. Not that you won't know from the sound quality and from how tight it's been. I think since 2017, I would say we have definitely gotten a lot tighter. 2017, 2018 was when things shifted a little bit and we were really able to have better. That's when you became a pro. (laughs) I guess so. It changed a little bit. So I would say, you know, maybe 2016, 17 was when the new era of the podcast started. In the beginning, it's not to say that there weren't some interesting shows and there weren't some really great topics because there were. I stand by all my research, although things have changed somewhat. A lot of the stuff, I mean, history. Your effort has not. No, the effort hasn't changed. And I think in some ways it's it was even more back in the early days because I was struggling but it's like trying to prove myself yeah but i mean it's like any sitcom any tv show i mean you look at the first season and oh my god it's trying to feel itself out right i mean seinfeld is unrecognizable in the first season by comparison to the later season and i think the first season if you guys have not same holds true for you yeah but anyway that's not the question the question that tina asked was how the hell do you tackle a 500 episode catalog and that would be the way only listen to the odd episodes (laughs) or just do that would that work tina just listen to the odd odd episodes they're all odd in their own special way oh nice (laughs) well played Now that's a compliment. That's a compliment. I know, but is she saying it like we used to say when we were dating? Like the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Like, like (laughs) (laughs) when did you say that? Oops. Yeah. Mm. Oopsies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's a question from Bevis in the UK. He couldn't join the hangout, but he has been a longtime listener also. And Bevis says, "Do you have?" A favorite episode out of the 500 that stands out. Ooh. I have a couple. One is a hilarious one, which I think about all the time. The gifts one with the bra thing. Oh, that was a good one. There's one. They've taken it off Amazon, but we read the comments. God, I've never laughed so hard. That that was was so funny. It was bad gifts. They've taken it off Amazon? They took that bra thing off of Amazon. It we've never I don't know that we've ever laughed harder looking at some of the gadgets. It was the the podcast is I don't know what number it is, but it was like the worst things you could possibly give somebody for Christmas and we really did the work for you guys. I still think about that and it's so we still refer to it. I know. Because it's funny. I mean that I like, still wear you, it to work. What about the the scarf? The scarf. Flask? Oh my god! Yeah, yes. there. Oh, that is that stands out just because it's hilarious. I mean, Halloween candy. I mean, the honestly, Kelsey, Kelsey, come on, girl. Out of all of the memorable episodes, ours was definitely very oh, memorable. A hundred, a hundred percent for sure. Absolutely. I, Right? Colby and Kelsey are, 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 I've been trying to do another one where we have another disgusting challenge for you guys, as you know. But I'm right here. Love you guys. <laughs> we love gross things, so we're up for it. I just think that the four of us together trying gross things really works. It's a good vibe. <laughs> With the kids feeding off of it. Too. Yes, the that kids was, really yes. enjoyed oh, yeah. that. Oh my God, I miss, I miss the girls. Tell them hi. We will tell them hi. Lyle and Galt have come in and said it was episode 149, the Bra Gift podcast. Yes. 149? Yes. Oh, that God. It long was ago? so freaking funny. Oh, we have to update that. I don't know if we can because they took off the funniest thing, but Kelsey and Kobe will come in and we'll get another hilarious well, maybe episode. Well, maybe, maybe there's too. a wine jock strap now instead of a bra. Ugh. Okay. So, of the memorable episodes, 
the funny ones always stand out for us. The one that we did on misogyny and wine was pretty personal. Yeah, did I drink true. wine when I was pregnant? Another one that actually has helped a lot of women. So that stood out. In terms of guests, there are so many incredible guests. It's hard for me to narrow it down. But I will say part of the reason he's been on the show twice, Edouard Miai from Chateau Suran is one of my favorite guests. I adore him personally, but he also, his story is incredible and he's so modest about it. So really those two shows, the first one, I had no idea that his family had harbored a Jewish family during World War II, had been thanked personally by Winston Churchill, had done all of these things to sort of fight against the Nazi regime in Bordeaux, and he didn't even talk about it. So I really adore him. And then, of course, friends of mine. Elizabeth Gabay and Ben Burnham. It's the yeast. Who could forget that? The two of them, the Rose podcast. Oh gosh, I love those guys. Jim Morris. No, I was I mean, Jim Morris. <laughs> you know, I love having him on. It's like when Chris Elliott would come on uh, David Letterman. Because they're personal right? friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, and you could have goof- a good laugh. And the goofball. Having Antonio Cabaldo from Feodi di San Gregorio on, and also Piero Mascheradino from Mastro Bordino. I mean, these are icons. They're just absolute legends. Just knowing that they're real people, that's really amazing for me. Those stand out. And then there are things that are surprising. And Richard Betts, when he came on to talk about giving up the Master Sommelier title because of the mm, scandal, right. that was a really big deal. A very important show. Mm-hmm. So there's a few like that. That's a lot of shows, not one. <laughs> Bevis, I'm sorry. But there have been 500. 500. If you happen to be feeling inspired by all these amazing patron questions and you want to join the community, it is definitely worth it. It is $21 US a year to join. So inexpensive to have this gift of these wonderful people be around you and be part of your community. Go to patreon.com slash wine for normal people to join today. Also, if you're interested in the wine opener, which we talk about later, wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes is where you'll find that, as well as new classes and gift certificates for the holidays. If there's a wine lover in your life who'd like to take classes with me. And we cannot thank our exclusive sponsor, Wine Access Enough, who has made many of these 500 episodes possible. We could not do this show without them. Please support them as they support us. And why wouldn't you want to? They allow you access to wines that you can't get elsewhere. Their site is like walking into a store where nothing you can buy is bad. There are very few wine stores where you can say that. But Wine Access is your online destination for the best wines that are carefully selected. And Wine Access were voted Wirecutter's best wine club. You can join the Wine for Normal People Wine Access Wine Club by going to wineaccess.com slash normal wine access. And I will be working together again in 2024. Check out the fantastic wines at Wine Access and make sure that you ask for a Wine Access gift card or if you know someone who loves wine, that you buy them a Wine Access gift card. It is a fantastic way to show someone that you are thinking of them because the wines are so thoughtfully selected. If you want to see what I love and you want some ideas, go to wineaccess.com WFMP. You'll get 10% off your first order. There's a Ferraton Saint-Joseph Blanc right now. Oh my gosh. It is one of the most delicious things I've ever had. Cloudline Red Blend from Old Vines in Contra Costa County. All these great wines you can't find elsewhere. Wineaccess.com slash WFMP for an idea of new picks on my page and wineaccess.com slash normal to join that wine club. What a great gift for the holidays. And now let's get back to the show. Tim. I didn't know you were going to call on me, but that's I'm fine. calling on you. I'm calling on yeah, you. I'm calling on you. My questions were along the line of number one, did you ever think this podcast would go so long? 500 episodes and I've noticed changes over the years, but how do you think the show has evolved? And going forward, where do you see things moving? You know what? Let's let MC Ice answer some of that question because I think that he is... Rick's not here. Yeah. I mean, he... Right. You owe a lot to him for for getting this started and for convincing you to put yourself out there. All right. Now, it's new new Rick's time now. (laughs) New Rick. (laughs) New Rick. (laughs) I'll take that. That's a compliment. 
Rick's a great guy. He is a great He's guy. A he is guy. a wonderful human being. I don't think we even knew what was going on when it started, right? I mean, we had dinner right. at Stark's and, oh, that's in right. Santa that was, Rosa. Oh, that was good. And his wife was the one who introduced us. Oh, I forgot about that. I said that I wanted to do something in media with wine because I had been working for the big winery. And I felt like uh, there was yes, nothing available. Well. <laughs> we both... <laughs> So you could never forget that. Yeah, if you anybody has questions about that, MCS could tell you all about that. But when we started it, Rick was the driver of it. He sent me a Blue Yeti microphone, oh, and I did right. it in our like echoey office in it, our craftsman style house. And he was like, put a blanket over your head yep. so it doesn't echo as much mm -hmm. because we got the wrong kind of mic. There's a two different kinds of microphones. One that is just basically unidirectional like this. You talk into it and then it sound doesn't bounce around. And then you have another mic that so early podcast, you can hear frogs from our backyard <laughs> um, if you listen hard enough. But I don't think that we knew what the direction was. It was honestly, Tim, it's a field of dreams. This is always how I talk about the show. And I think it's really weird because I have a business degree and I really should not have built a business like this. But it was I want to do this. I don't know what I should do. So I'm just going to take this concept I have and just do it. And it was if you build it, they will come. In the first year, we won iTunes Best New Arts podcast. So I knew immediately that in 2011 that there was and, and we weren't even releasing very consistently either. I mean, for the first couple of years, we weren't releasing that consistently. Got a couple episodes in every month. It just wasn't every Monday. It was pretty inconsistent. I had also just had a baby. At what point do you think you became really focused on it? I mean, because it drives everything you do. We schedule around this for holidays, for, <laughs> you know. Like, well, we bring stuff with trip. us. Yes, it does drive a lot. And we do have to make sure that, that we release shows. But did I think that we would make it to 500 episodes? Tim, I don't even think I even thought about it. Did you? No. We just keep going. No. That's the good thing. You know, but, everybody says, oh, just make sure, keep going. We just keep but, going. But some things that changed. Initially, Rick was doing the, the editing. And then we took that on. We were sharing responsibilities there. Then you took it all over yourself. So you do every bit of the editing packaging and releasing of it yourself so yep. you do all the technical aspects of it yep um, plus all the show prep and obviously the star and put all the planning and everything so you it really is a one one person show no it isn't you're there you but, help you're, yeah, but, you're uh, yeah, and you're but, supportive that yeah, helps yes i'm supportive but it's you know, begrudgingly you're always like all right come on do the podcast <laughs> <laughs> You're busy. So the evolution, I would say, over the 13 years, well, first of all, we banter a lot less, right? It's much more down to business. He gets mad at me sometimes because I'm like, okay, we got a lot of material to get through. We're going to do it like this. It is much tighter, I would say. But I think that's a natural evolution of any show and anything that you do as you become more experienced. You want it to be tighter. It's still Remember relaxed. We, we scripted out questions there for a while. Remember that? And yes. we realized that that didn't Oh, he did terribly work. with that. It was yes. horrible. Yes. Yeah, so we didn't want to we, do that. We, we felt it would be a lot smoother to just have it more organic. Since I really don't know much about wine, to just interrupt and ask questions as they pop into my head like any other listener. And I don't even tell him what the show is about ahead of time because then he's taking a fresh look at it. And then in terms of the evolution, you know, I've put in my 10,000 hours. So there's pretty much no topic in wine that I haven't at least heard of. So that helps. I'm not an expert on every topic, but I definitely have been around this subject long enough that if you mention some random weird thing, likely I've heard of it. So with experience comes more polish. With experience comes better questions to be able to ask people. So it goes from the simple to something that's a little more insightful, which I like. I can ask things of people and they say to me, wow, that's a hard question or that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that before. Great. That's the goal every single time. And then at the end, also for people to say that was fun. I've done all the prep. I've done the research, but also to make it a comfortable environment for people where at the end of the show, somebody says, I really want you to come visit. That's fantastic. Or 
if it sparks somebody's interest in something that's very different, like if MCIs and I have some kind of conversation where it either leads somebody to write me and say, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was there. And sometimes it's you, Tim, <laughs> you know, I didn't know that was there. And so that's really interesting. That's great. That's really the goal. It's become a great education resource. That's one thing that's remained the same is that it's hyper-focused on what is going to be the best way to make it as educational for the listener as possible. That's always the goal of every single episode. Without being onerous. Correct. Without being like, oh God, I can't listen to this, you know? I mean, I'm sure no, there's some still, it's ones, still, but It's still like, it's, it needs to be presented like the listeners in the room with you. Right. That it's very personal. I think some things have changed and some things have stayed exactly the same. And in the future, I don't see a lot of changes. We're not going to change the formula at all. I don't see a need to do that because we've done this long enough to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And it seems like everybody's relatively happy. You know, you've done a good job of not trying to please everybody because that's impossible. You've remained true to yourself throughout the process. I'm trying to get her to do more video, though, in the future. We'll see. To have this evolve into more of a video-friendly format. We shall see. And one of the other questions I'm sort of going to add to this is somebody who could not be here but still had a similar question, Brandon, and he's been a listener for a really, really long time. Your opinions are fluid and they've changed over the years. How have you evolved and changed over time? And I think that that is a really interesting question. I try to adapt and change. I mean, I remember when I first started, I was obsessed with alcohol levels in wines. Do you remember that? Yes. It was like, I was so obsessed with how high the alcohol was in wine. And then as I learned more about it, I realized that's really not the story. The story is, is it balanced? What are you doing with the wine? How do you pair this wine? All of those kinds of things. It's your picture frame of structure analogy. Right. So those things never change. However, I think it's important to change and grow. So I'll tell you right now, I am really not into no and low alcohol wines. And I don't think that that's wine. I don't know if I'll ever change my because stance on Because you're a prude that. or because it affects the, the balance well, of the wine? it's the picture frame, right? When you take out alcohol. Also, we talked about in the podcast on fire, when you start taking things out of wine that are basically one of the major components of wine, then it becomes something else. Will I change my view on that? Maybe. Who knows? But I don't think so. I haven't changed my views on things like natural wine. I don't know. Have your tastes changed Given your extensive knowledge now? I'm pretty consistent. I like Carmenere now. I didn't used to like it. Okay. That's and something. things like Pais are interesting. I don't think that I would have tried like the Mission Grape back then. So there's interesting things, but also winemaking has changed and people are better winemakers and they're more skilled winemakers. I've always been willing to try anything. It's just... Well, they're obviously listening to you now. Who? The winemakers. Oh, I thought you were talking about the wines. I was like, no, I don't the winemakers really are, are, are have heeded your advice. No, yes. Well done, Heather. You had one, right? I'm Heather, I'm in California, and all of my wine knowledge prior to this podcast was California based. Mm -hmm. uh, very little old world, which I've learned a lot about in the last two, three years. My question was on the same lines as Tim and a couple others, as far as your start. What got you into wine education? Where did that come into play? Was it because this concept was presented to you? Or I know that you were at the Big Honkin Winery before, so you've had interest. The whole wine thing, and this is actually, I think I mentioned it in the book, all of the things that I like are in wine. So it really works for me because I love travel and I love other cultures and I'm really curious about the world and I also love history and I think that the tie between the present and the past is very important and I constantly have looked at that as something really important. I I, I think because I, I always joke around because I'm an earth sign. I really like earth science. I'm terrible at chemistry or any other science, but I like physical science. I've always done really well with plants. It had all of these things. Plus, 
I have a very, unfortunately, very strong sense of smell. So I figured I might as well use that for something. My dad got into wine when I was like in high school and he had been blah, blah, blahing about Italian wines and this and that. And then I, so I had like a little bit of wine here and there. I mostly drank Beast in college. I mean, Milwaukee's best out of a keg, Natty Light, um, all of the great, really gourmet beers. Um, Those are the craft beers of the 90s, in case anybody's wondering. After college, I lived in Boston, and Boston is a place where adult education is a thing. So I took an Italian class. I took a pottery class. And then my sister and I were like, we're looking through the Boston Center for Adult Education catalog. And we're like, look, we keep going to all these wine tastings because we would go to all these like local wine tastings or we'd pay 50 bucks to go to a Amarone tasting. And it would be like, okay, great. This tastes good. I have no idea what it is. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I know nothing about it. Blah, blah, blah. We saw this class and we're like, whatever. It's like $150, six weeks. We'll take it. We have time. Neither of us were dating anybody at the time. So, you know, we, we hauled our butt over to the Boston Center for Adult Education. And there was a guy named John Miller. And he was had a very strong Boston accent, worked for a distributor, and brought us all these fantastic wines and taught us about all these wines of the world that we had never heard of before, we didn't even know existed. And I thought to myself, I should do this. Like, I would love to do this. At the time, though, I was working in high-tech market research. It seemed like wine, like how do you even get into that? It was a real black box. So I kept it on the back burner, but always thought, well, maybe if I do marketing, like wineries need marketing, maybe I could do that. So after business school, I actually joke that I could have done cars, pills, or wine because that's the kind of person that I am. But I got a job at Toyota. I got a, got offered a job at Tylenol and I got offered a job at the big winery. And obviously I picked the winery. And so It was an interesting experience, as we've already mentioned, but that launched me as it has launched many people's careers, you know, working in big wine. And then you go and find your way. There's so many people who've worked in big wine, and then they wind up getting the training necessary and figuring it out to be able to then go into wine. It's much easier to figure out how to get into wine today. But wine education, I mean, for me, it was just that I was in the right place at the right time with the right personality. I'm glad you picked wine and not pottery, because a pottery podcast would be really tough to pull off, I think. You know I got kicked out of that pottery class, right? Did you really? Yeah, that's a lot, another story. Yes. Oh, like, because you, because you were reenacting Ghost? No, because the oh. guy was like, if you can't make a bowl, you can't be here. I'll oh. give you your money back. <laughs> yeah. Mine just turned into this lump every single time. It just never worked. Okay. I am going to answer a question that only this one person, he's not able to be here, could ask this because he is somebody that met with me a long time ago. He went to my undergrad alma mater and we became friends and he's one of the most positive people that I know, John S. from Maryland. John said... Like all overnight sensations, ha, 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 when did you finally realize that your wine business would be successful as an ongoing enterprise? And why was that? I remember when we first met in September 2018 that you were contemplating whether your podcast was a viable enterprise. Among others, I'm glad that you did not quit. Actually, it was around that time, around 2018, I was just contemplating packing it in and not having a podcast anymore, and maybe even getting out of the wine business altogether. For anybody that has been an entrepreneur before, or knows people who are entrepreneurs, this is more of a question about tenacity and about viability. And I will say there are three factors that kept me going. One, MCIs. I would not ever have continued past podcast 10 if it had not been for you. Clearly, I can recognize talent, so (laughs) I got that going for me. I almost quit how many times? I felt like discussions were more before 2018. Yeah, they were, but then there was sort of this... Then then there's the occasional, oh my God, now what am I going to do? Right. Uh Uh-huh. And so I was just discouraged, and I did not think that I was going to be able to keep going because... 
it's really hard to put yourself out there, regardless of whether it's wine or comedy or politics or Especially whatever you're doing. Especially when it's not doing. live events, because you're just sort of throwing it out into the ether and you have no you idea. You don't have no idea what the reception is. Yeah, that was a really. And, and then when you when you started Patreon too and got. That Much was, more active involvement, I think. That really took things to another level and was an energy boost for you. And it continues to be. Yep. The interaction with people, because the problem is that when you do put things out there and all you have is social media, you have a lot it's of people. It's one way. That's yeah. a, you, you like the personal interaction. Well, with, no, you get personal interaction. It's just the, the people on the other side sometimes really are not having your best interests at heart. And they can say some really, really mean things that are very discouraging. It's bothersome. It's not constructive. It is something that can really weigh people down and it can make them quit. And I think I was at a certain point when John met me where I was thinking, I don't know that I can when do you're, this you're anymore. When you were busting your butt making all this content, it's hard to monetize it. It's really discouraging. The yeah. patrons really did make it a really huge difference. It really made a huge difference. But then also the fact that podcasting became a viable enterprise. I think when the classes really started, to t- the online classes, when those really started to take off, that was a nice little boost. I started to but be able started to find bef- a way to make more than $35,000 a year because I'm not kidding. The first probably six years of this, that's all I made. That was my gross. So it was really, really tough on our family. It was tough on everything. You can do anything, but you've got to have a tough skin and you have to have the right support network in order to keep going because without people like John, even John after that, I mean, so great, right? He was somebody who he still to this day is like, I'm so, he sends emails all the time saying, I'm so glad you kept going and I'm so glad to see you successful. And a bunch of you are saying this right now in the comments also, and you don't know how like a small little thing that you may say or do matters a lot. The problem is, and I think I've said this before, like Conan O'Brien says this on his podcast, like you hear one negative thing and it outweighs hundreds of positive comments because the one negative thing is the thing that you remember. That's what you're going to dwell on, sure. And it's different if somebody says it constructively, but that's usually not how it comes across, which is why, again, you know, I just sort of have abandoned social media for Patreon. John, thank you for your support. All right. So, Scott. You are a way pre-pandemic listener also, my friend. Hey, guys. Uh, Scott O. I'm from the central coast of California. I live just south of Santa Barbara. Yeah, I was thinking, of, just thinking about that. Um, when was your first wine underground? 17? 18. Yeah, 18. That's right. That's right, <clears throat> Scott. Because I attended two of those in Healdsburg. I'm kind of the pedophile in this group, I think. I don't know. That's you a, are. a ton of it. You're the pedophile but- of everything <laughs> in the entire world. And... <laughs> Scott is awesome because he came with me and Laura when we were doing the Underground Wine event right. around Santa Barbara before we had sort of shut down the event, but we had so much fun that yeah. day. Yeah, I think, I don't know, fall of 19, we went to tasting room after tasting room in Las Olivas up in Santa Barbara County. So, so yeah, fun. that that was a, a true pleasure. So, I yeah, I've been around a long time. I don't, I started maybe in your... Uh, 150th. I haven't heard your really early ones, but you were very slick and very polished by the time I found you. Well, um, thank you. And I think, yeah, and I think that's what caught my ear and uh, incredibly bright. And and I learned something every time I, I listen to one of your shows. So um, anyway, my question, my question, Elizabeth is, so you've been at this a few years. Is there a varietal and or a wine region that You've done a complete 180 on since you started this journey. Is there something that you've turned around and you you totally are into currently? This one's for you, Scott. So glad you're asking this (laughs) because when I think of something that I would never have touched when I started this, German Pinot. Oh, wow. Really? When I touched it. No, because a lot of it was sweet. It was mm. gross. I mean, we even said that in the first Pinot episode, we said that some German Pinot is sweet. And, be- now, and now, like, people listen to some of the old episodes, and they're like, it is not. And I'm like, yeah, so but Germany's in evolved. it was. Germany's <laughs> evolved, or you have? No, Germany has because of climate okay. change. So what's happened is that some of these regions, I will also say I think I'm, I like Chinon a lot more than I used to also. Mm. Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley. I think that what has happened is that climate 
climate change has made it possible for some of these grapes to really thrive. And I really like German Pinot now. Alsace Pinot I had never had before, and now there's a lot more of it. When I started in the industry, when I started in the industry, it was 2005. So I've been at this for almost 20 years. The Romans were just finishing up at that point. (laughs) So I think that climate change has enabled a lot of regions to do things that previously they were not able to do. And as a result, I really like these wines. German Pinot in particular is just like the success story of climate change. So the takeaways are climate change, good. (laughs) Pandemic, good. Both of those have led to... Expansive growth. Earlier, we talked about analyzing and catching trends and being able to interpret things correctly. Mm -hmm. That is not a good example of that. No. 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 Sorry. What about for you, Scott? Are there any regions that you think are different or cool that you didn't like before? Oh, wow. Um, What does she talk to you into hmm. against your will? Well, I would have never thought of drinking Syrah from Walla Walla. You know, yeah. like the Rocks District. Now I uh, love a lot of that wine. Um, I actually took a trip to Walla Walla a couple of years ago, just because of listening to your show. Uh, was it as shows. De- was it as described? You know, I was there in the fall, and it was frigid. It was very cold. But mm-hmm. I went to places like Sleight of Hand, uh, which I just totally fell in love with. But yeah, I, Walla Walla would never have occurred to me. I'm not a big Cabernet drinker. But I love their Syrahs there. So I think that's... In in fairness, Scott, did did you or did you not, if I recall correctly, because I mean, like, (laughs) I know your whole travel schedule. Um, I believe that you bundled some of that with an Oregon swing. Yeah. Yeah. So don't say you didn't, like, at least have a little Pinot on the trip. (laughs) (laughs) No, we start, yeah, we we started in in Portland or the Willamette, and then we, you know, made a trip across straight. Uh, state to Walla Walla, but that's a great place. I recommend anybody that's never been there. It's worth a visit. A hundred percent. It's pretty great. No Pinot, but that's okay. No, no Pinot. They're never going to have Pinot, but the Syrah is really enough. And the Merlot is actually really great too. I, the cab is good, but I, it's yep. a little big for me, but yes, yep. love it. Love it. Love it. That trip was because of you. So. Oh, well, but I'm glad I, you trusted I, I, me enough to, to use no, your I, precious time to take yeah. it. So I, lo- I love it. We'll forever be a fan of there. Yeah. It's pretty fantastic. Scott, I do have to just thank you so much for all your support over the years. You're just, you're amazing. I love you guys. You know, I see your, I I love all of you guys. You know, when I see your names in my inbox, it just makes me happy. I think of you, like you bring a smile to my face. She talks about you as individuals all the time. Please come out West. Neil. Yes. Hello, friend. Hello. So I'm Neil, and I'm from the up-and-coming wine region of Maryland, which I think is going to be future episode 563. Um, You're going to take me around, right? Absolutely. Did you write that down? Oh, yeah. Put that in the calendar. (laughs) No, he has to convince me first. Okay. Yeah, well, okay. So my question is more mundane. I always come back to the, the waiter's friend or the bartender's friend, cork puller that you have on your website. And it's it's the time of year where there's so many gizmos out there to try these new things. Every cork puller I've had other than that really leave me disappointed. And I keep coming back to that simple waiter's friend. Why is that your favorite and why does it work so well? So here's the deal. If you don't know what Neil is talking about, I have a wine opener on the website and I'm not trying to pimp it out. And many of you have it. It is... The only thing that I will use when I got started, well, it was really when I took the Harvard bar course in Boston, I went to a place on Newbury street in Boston. If anybody knows where that is, it's like the major shopping street. And there was this kitchen supply store and they had a lot of cool gadgets and things that it was a lot of Italian stuff. Barrel. (laughs) (laughs) And They had this wine opener. You know, I asked the people, like, is this any good? And they said, yeah, I bought it. And I used it when I took the Harvard bar course. And I used it. I was doing like a side hustle. I was being a bartender for caterers when I lived in Boston. And this wine opener was so easy to use. Then when I moved to St. John, you know, my crazy story of how I packed up after my corporate job before business school and went to St. John, I opened 
dozens of bottles a night with this wine opener, and it was foolproof. I still have that wine opener. So you still have the original one, I still have the original. It has printed on it the type of wine opener that it is. So I was able to track it down and find the one company that was able to get it for me. Unfortunately, they don't engrave it. They just screen printed on. So my wine for normal people thing will wear off eventually. But the cork puller itself is heavy and it's a single hinge. Double hinge is just a train wreck and it's a- More moving parts, more problems. Right. I think that that's why. What do you think, Neil? I definitely agree. I, I was just out in uh, California at an Airbnb in wine country, and they had a, a. I didn't bring my wine opener because I was afraid TSA would take it because it does have take that it. Little... They will take it. We've been Never working on an exemption from that. <laughs> they yet. will take and it. They had, yes. They had that little angel thing that oh, I, I hate can't those. stand. Oh my god! Uh, but it was in wine country. You'd think that it would have a, a, a good opener there, but. Uh, they did not. So I was looking forward to getting back to where I would have my simple but effective. Uh, I mean, think about board. how many bottles you've opened with that thing. Oh, uh, my We've gosh. opened with that thing. It's got to be in the thousands at this point. It's incredible. And that's just this year. <laughs> I would say that I do use a foil cutter. I yes. do, too. Yeah, yeah. The, those are great. I, I have yeah. one that's magnetic. Magnetic yeah. that sticks, sticks right to the fridge. I like that, too. I do sometimes get lazy and I'll just use the foil knife, you know, because I don't want to kick another one. Show them the scars. I, no, I have never cut myself with a foil knife, but I have cut myself the, on the foil on the before. foil, sure. Yes. It's, foil, those, definitely. I've said this before about wine refrigerators too, Neil. The simpler it is, the better it is. And you can't do better than that wine opener. And what's funny is that if you look at it on the website, it looks like a crappy one that you would get at Trader Joe's. But as soon as you hold it, you know it's something different because it's pretty heavy relative to other wine openers that look like that. It just Sturdy. works every time. It is. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's Good probably question. the real reason that TSA steals them. Right. <laughs> Mi italiano. Michele, come stai? Benissimo, voi? Bene, bene. All right, tell me. <laughs> I'm from Genoa in northwest Italy. Uh, I live in Manchester in the UK. And I got into wine because I was living here. I wanted to have some sort of connection back to my country. So I started starting with the W2. Mm-hmm. That was a nice start. But then thanks to your podcast, I learned far more beyond just the standard French varieties and, you know, like just the standard knowledge, I would say. Yes. That is amazing. You're the best. Okay. Tell us your question. I'm just wondering what is still preventing new world countries to experiment more with non-French varieties? This is a twofold answer for you. One has to do with a news item I just posted on Patreon last week about Jancis Robinson talking about the latest edition of the Oxford Companion and an acknowledgement from her as she's passing the reins on, because I don't think she's good. She didn't take as active a role this time and she will not going forward, but she created that book. And when she created it, it was with a very UK orientation. The UK-focused orientation means French, French wines, and then a little bit of Spanish and Portuguese. But it didn't really acknowledge and never has Italian wines. Now, if we look at, I've talked about this in a couple of the Italian podcasts, because after reading about it, I've realized that there's been a big problem in the US and the UK about a bias against Italian wines. Why do you think that is? It has to do with the location of Italy vis-a-vis the UK mm-hmm. and the relationship between Italy and the UK historically, which has been not so tight. And the fact that Italy had a lot of changes and was not unified and there wasn't a unified front about these are the wines. So remember that the one wine that has gotten a lot of play in the UK press is Barolo. And Barolo and Barbaresco have gotten that because they were former French places. The orientation has always been what are the places where the UK has had a thumbprint that would be port and that would be sherry and that would be, you know, places like that, Rioja. And then what are the places that they have the most longstanding historic ties to the biases there? And that's Bordeaux. That is, I mean, really, especially Bordeaux. Burgundy has followed. That is the number one thing. But the second thing is very good news for you because Australia is leading the charge. And in fact, our Australian listeners tell me that in Australia, Italian wines are more coveted than French wines. I have in my wine refrigerator a Fiano from South Australia. They are growing 
Tempranillo. They are growing Torriga Nacional. They are growing Nebbiolo. In the U.S., we do have some. Now, Nebbiolo is very difficult to grow, but we have lots of Sangiovese in certain pockets, and it's going to increase because as the climate changes, we need to start being realistic about what can grow. And frankly, we're going to do some podcasts about what's going on in Napa, but the one thing no one is talking about, they're talking about all these political issues and no one's talking about the fact that climate change has made it very difficult to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. So what is the next thing? It's going to have to be Alianico. It's going to have to be, oh, it's going to have to be Tariga. That. I love Alianico. It's like, it's right. so good. Yeah. But it's happening in places that are facing up to climate change. Australia is the number one place that you're going to start to see this. It's already there. They're they're already experiencing this. We don't see it as much, but we will soon. So new world countries are definitely there. And then you do have some in Argentina as well. They have such a strong tie to Italy. I'm not sure why they haven't capitalized off of that, but I do think that that will be the next place where it will catch on. Australia is far and away the most progressive in terms of saying, look, climate change is here. We have lots of different grapes we can grow. We have a strong Italian heritage. People really like Italian wines. Here they are. I mean, the fact that I can get a Fiano from Australia, huge. As a Ligurian man, I really hope that I can get some Vermentino from all over the world at some point. That's another one here that is doing very well in Virginia. Luca Cascina from Barbersville makes an excellent Vermentino, but there's a number of other people experimenting with that grape because it's it's pretty heat tolerant. Great. Yeah. Good. It's coming. Thank you. We are going to wrap it up. All we can say in closing is, wow, 500 episodes. We are so grateful whether you're Douglas who has listened from episode one or Dan or Claudette. I mean, these people have just Keith has listened forever. If you are somebody who's listened from episode one, whether you're new this year, we just appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this. We love it. We love the audience. We enjoy talking about wine each week in a way that hopefully is a little different from how it's been presented in the past. And I hope that we can continue to do this and we could never do it without you guys. So thank you everybody who has participated in this. We have a bunch of listeners here who are here to support and have fun and we appreciate them. And we need to thank everybody, especially the patrons who without them, we would not survive. And again, I I do need to thank Wine Access, all the people who take classes. And we just so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who has ever offered a kind word, sent an email over these 500 episodes, learned something and shared that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are the best. You set out to build a community from the outset. And I think it's has to have exceeded your expectations because it the, the people are so terrific. It's pretty freaking cool. That's all I can say. You guys rock. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Thank you.